0: You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points.
1: Hi, I'm Aaron White with the Progressive Policy Institute, and you're listening to Radically Pragmatic. We have a great podcast today featuring audio from an event hosted by PPI. We have an esteemed panel of energy experts and Senator John Hickenlooper of Colorado. The event focused on expanding power line capacity to enable renewable energy deployment. But before we roll the tape, I wanted to be sure that you had the latest and greatest from PPI. As House Democrats start to work this week on a massive $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, A new Expedition Strategies poll commissioned by PPI offers timely insights on how a pivotal group of voters view President Biden's ambitious Build Back Better agenda. The findings suggest that Biden and congressional Democrats should focus on the broad economic benefits of the reconciliation bill rather than social equity and be flexible about the ultimate size and cost of the spending bill. The poll surveyed voters in 44 battleground districts and eight states likely to have competitive Senate races in next year's midterm elections. Check it out at ProgressivePolicy.org. Also happening this week, the Mosaic Economic Project hosted its third policy workshop called Women Changing Policy. A diverse group of economists and tech experts met with leaders in the field, congressional staff and journalists to talk about how to amplify women's voices in the fields of economics and technology where women's voices are underrepresented. Check out next week's podcast to learn more about this cohort of women and get a recap of what they learned. Before we get to the event, don't forget to follow PPI on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Just search for the Progressive Policy Institute or PPI on Twitter. With that, enjoy this week's PPI webinar on improving electricity transmission siting opportunities to meet America's consumer, economic, and clean energy climate goals. Hosted by PPI's Paul Bledsoe. Good morning, everyone. Uh,
2: My name is Paul Bledsoe. I'm a strategic advisor and lead the Energy Project at the Progressive Policy Institute. And today we're holding a virtual event on improving electricity transmission siting opportunities in the United States. Uh, We have a really terrific panel of experts who are gonna be joining us, who I'll introduce in a minute. And then later in the hour, we expect uh, Senator John Hickenlooper of Colorado, former governor of Colorado, and also a member of the Senate Energy Committee to join us to tell us uh, about uh, action on Capitol Hill regarding transmission siting. But um, first, I want to introduce our uh, really distinguished panel. Uh, Donnie Colston is the director of utilities for the IBEW and will provide. Uh, employment and labor perspective today on this topic. We also have joining us Mackie McCleary, who is an energy consultant and former Rhode Island state utility regulator who can talk about the very important state perspective on siting. States have most of the authority when it comes to electricity. policy. Also with us today is uh, Sue Tierney, a leading US energy analyst and author of the recent National Academy of Sciences report on transmission siding, We're very lucky to have Sue with us today. Uh, Bob Kump is the pr- president of Avangrid uh, uh, and can discuss um, uh, details of a uh, transmission line through Maine to New England that uh, has gained national attention and I think is a microcosm of the challenges we face. Uh, regarding transmission siding. And then uh, also joining us is Bill Parsons, who's Chief Operating Officer of the American Council on Renewable Energy and can provide uh, a business and um, perspective on the clean energy transition. Uh, Just a few uh, remarks from me at the top. Um, As most people know, President Biden has proposed an incredibly ambitious Uh, clean energy transition in the United States, including uh, the goal of reaching uh, all uh, clean energy net zero, as it were, energy by 2035. Uh, So in less than 15 years, uh, most experts believe this is going to take a tremendous expansion of the uh, power line capacity in the United States, but there are real obstacles there. So that's our that's our topic today and I, I wanted to start with you uh, Sutierney as the author of the National Academy of Sciences report tell me what that report found about the the, the challenges and the opportunities in uh, uh, electricity transmission siting today
3: well I'm uh, going to refer the audience to two different reports that I was uh honored to be part of. One of them was the future of electric power in the United States, and the other was accelerating the decarbonization of the U.S. energy system. Each of these two committees concluded that we just can't keep going as we have been going with regard to transmission siting. Um, Paul, if you don't mind, let, let me just uh, give you my point of view about this, uh, and then I'll Please. refer back to those reports. Um, Please because my my own experience on transmission siting goes way back uh, and uh, from the beginning of my career. And we we know that uh, transmission planning, siting, and permitting for reliability projects is pretty easy. I mean, easy in quotes. Um, And nobody wants the lights to go out. So that puts a supercharger under the permitting process compared to projects that are designed to save consumers money and projects that are designed to support public policy uh, objectives. And and we just cannot keep that approach that takes 10 to 15 years and sometimes just kills projects, unfortunately. That's not going to get us to where we need to go as a nation and as consumers in states with carbon reduction and clean energy targets. Um, The first project I was ever involved with was when I was in New England. I was a um, head of the Energy Facility Siting Board. And the first project was a high-voltage DC line from Hydro-Quebec down through New Hampshire into Massachusetts. And uh, this was uh, pre-EPACT 1992, pre-unbundling of transmission and and generation, pre-order 2000 very high electricity costs uh, driven by oil prices. And this line was designed to provide economic benefits for the consumers of New England. And it was in an interesting way, it, it worked because the designers of the deal made sure that everyone benefited from the project. There was a sharing of the proceeds essentially from the savings and everybody got a piece of the action. With a special side deal for those economically for those states that bore the siting uh, of the project, that was really important. Um, let me just say, uh, these studies and our experience tells us that consumers in every state benefit, rel- except for Texas, Hawaii, and Alaska. Every consumer in every state benefits from being part of an interstate grid. The initial studies of those um, benefits of transmission typically do not look long enough or broadly enough at the benefits that flow. And every state with a clean energy plan is going to have to rely on an interstate grid. So today's today's approach won't get there. I want to commend FERC just at the outside for for its advanced notice of proposed rulemaking that addresses key issues. Are there zones with rich renewables that we need to access and deliver to consumers? Do we need to look at portfolios of supply that could be met with different transmission targets? How broad are the benefits? Um, Who should pay? All of those things are completely clearly needed. And states have, an important role here because they need to step up to uh, broaden their own view about this regionalism of transmission systems. So let me just pass the ball back to you, Paul, uh, and hope that this is gonna be a lively discussion.
2: Thank you, Sue, that was a great overview of the challenges and the opportunities, as you say, including consumer opportunities. Uh, Bill Parsons uh, still alluded a little bit to it. Tell me how you view this, scale of the transmission siding build out needed to meet the president's clean energy goals. Yeah,
4: Paul, thanks. Let me pick up where Sue left off. You know, um, these really are the the types of lines that we're talking about really are public goods. I mean, it's a rough analogy, but left to interstate highways. And if we're going to pass the hat to get people to, you know, ante up for interstate highways, whether we might still be building them. Right, And so we have, uh, just to give uh, the the listeners uh, some context here, about 88% of the country's technical wind potential and close to 60%, uh, 58% of the country's solar uh, technical potential is between the 50 states, between uh, the Mississippi River and the Rockies. These are world-class resources deep. In 2050, only 30% of electricity demand is going to come from that area. We, we just have to resource to load. Um, to your question, uh, the estimates are around $300 billion in forward looking investment to get the build out we need to, to you know, effectively decarbonize the grid, to have the transmission necessary to decarbonize the grid. Um, I, I just want to say, and I'm going to step back and I'll let us jump in here. I think um, in terms of you know, we, like ways and means markup started this morning, uh, Energy and Commerce will be completing today in terms of its budget reconciliation package on subtitle D, the energy title. Uh, I don't know that I can say for sure that the, the policy proposals and the investments included here will get the entirety of that job done. That $300 billion is an aggregate public-private number. That's not just, so the public investment will leverage private dollars. But I think they ought to be commended. This is what, one of the most significant forward-looking uh, uh, policy proposals on transmission uh, certainly that, that I can remember, and it is a really solid start that we should commend Congress for and be and be supportive as we go forward to get this across the finish line.
2: Thanks, Donnie. That, uh, uh, Bill Rother, that's a, a very important point about uh, the role of Congress. And a little later, we're going to hear from Senator Hickenlooper, who's going to tell us about efforts to expand the ability to cite these power lines through increased federal authority, but uh, it is remarkable uh, the clean energy expansion that is going on right now on Capitol Hill. And uh, I, I think we should keep in mind that uh, these goals are going to require this new uh, level of transmission. So thank you, Bill. Donnie, I want to talk about the, the economic benefits of the clean energy transition generally and building of uh, transmission lines specifically um, I know the IDW is intimately involved your, your 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 workers around the country in doing this work tell us how you see the the economic opportunities for for different uh, parts of the country and our workforce
5: you know Paul this is a subject matter that's uh, uh, near and dear to my heart and the reason I say that, having spent nearly 34 years as a lineman for Louisville Gas and Electric, building transmission and distribution lines, uh, clearly I understand uh, the need uh, for transmission, distribution, uh, you know, reliability and resiliency of the grid itself. But so it's this is a personal interest to, to me, myself, and I've, I've had the opportunity to testify twice on the on the hill specifically to transmission but the IBW you have to understand the IBW is 775,000 members. We have over 550,000 of our members get their direct income from energy. so this each time that we talk about energy it's a big impact on our membership. Uh, IBW is 130 years old and our members have been building transmission lines for over 100 years. And, uh, you know, President Biden has consistently talked about the clean energy transition and those blue-collar union jobs that it will provide to workers. And now BW is an example of exactly what he's talking about. You know, we, we think of the, of the transmission grid as the foundation for, for, the, for all industry throughout the United States and Canada. Uh, these jobs are highly skilled, blue-collar jobs with benefits, uh, you can build as many renewables if you want to, anywhere you want to, but if you can't ca- uh, connect them to the load source through a transmission line, it's not going to help you. Uh, we think about the IBW as an integral partner with our utilities and building, uh, uh, building and getting infrastructure built and operated and you know, we, we we just like the rest of you here, we know that there's real challenges between the federal, state regulators, local government approval and citing and permitting. Um, and this could take up to 10 years as we was discussing earlier. But to meet the challenge that President Biden has laid out for us for CO2 emissions of uh, reducing those by 100% by 2035, You know, it's imperative, but we're going to have to, in some way, shape, or form, reduce the amount of time that it takes to build electric transmission infrastructure. Uh, The the IBW itself, we're always uh, evaluating and looking at workforce needs and what training our members are going to need and what's the latest technology that we need to put into our apprenticeship programs. We have partnerships with our utilities and uh, together we have with uh, our contractors as well, but together we have over 350 apprenticeship training facilities throughout the United States that specifically focus on skilled workforce issues on how can we provide the workforce that's going to be needed. We anticipate that uh, to build out uh, the electric transmission system as it needs to be bid up. there's going to need to be at least 50,000 more linemen within the next 10 years. Uh, just to give you a, for instance, uh, of, of looking forward, it takes about three years to train a, uh, a, a journeyman lineman. It's probably double that when you talk about a seasoned lineman, that one that doesn't have to follow direction uh, right away, to just uh, put your foot here and put your arm here, but it's twice the number of years to do that for the transmission and distribution system. We, our partnerships that we have with uh, Avon Grid, as Bob would talk about here, the building that clean energy line across Maine down into Massachusetts is an, a prime example of the number of good clean energy jobs IBEW is focused on and what we're talking to the Hill about of folks focusing on as well. We're talking about just that job that Avon has right there. That's 600 IBEW members that will get employment, 300 permanently after the line is built, but there's another additional 800 jobs involved with indirect jobs, Uh, that are very advantageous to not only the IBEW, but a lot of the other skilled trades as well. And this, as I said earlier, this is the prime example of building out the system that President Biden has talked about is in the clean energy transition and good union jobs. Uh, We we think that with the federal government taking over the decision-making lead and market predictability uh, will follow, we hope, uh, uh, as will our plans to provide a and to build a provide the workers to build out the transmission system, but we know for a fact. Johnny, that
2: you know, I've seen. I was just going to, to say, time. I've seen statistics that the the total number of jobs in the president's clean energy and climate plan could be more than eight million. And so the 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 the. the but but you know, as Bill said so eloquently. The highway to move this energy has to be built, it has to be built expeditiously, and it has to have lower costs. So consumers benefit, and, and I know your your workers are a key aspect of that. I, I want uh, to turn uh, to Mackie McCleary and talk a little bit about the state role. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked so far about expanding federal authority, perhaps, and I think Senator Hickenlooper may touch on that later, but, but Mackey, I want to hear about your perspective from the States on what the States can do and the economic and consumer benefits that, uh, the clean energy transmission expansion can bring.
6: Yeah. I mean, so first of all, thank you. Um, uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. This is something that it's been near and dear to my heart for my whole career. So, um, The relationship between the states and the federal government, all the other stakeholders is complicated. I think um, at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is um, a confluence of challenges and opportunities that are presented to stakeholders at every level, not just the state and the federal. We have to also think about landowners. We have to think about uh, large commercial facilities, low-income residents. Um, the regional transmission organizations, the RTOs. There's a lot of people, a lot of interest involved in this. And in many ways at the state level is where sort of everything converges, right? So the federal government can see the state, the the, the local citizenry can see the state, and it puts a lot of pressure on uh, state regulators and policymakers uh, in a situation where they don't always have all of the regulatory Uh, authority, uh, even though both the economic benefit and challenges uh, uh, impact them. Um, And so I think a a short answer to your question is that the the relationship between the state and the federal policymakers should be as intimate as possible. But going back to what I I thought Susan did a great job of of laying out, the path to success is an outcome in which all of the stakeholders benefit. And that's across there's a broad set of policy outcomes that are possible as a result of the construction of transmission and just to kind of level set what we're talking about the existing transmission system is a wonder of the world it is a gigantic thinking machine in which all of every single generator is rotating at 3600 rpm all the time we don't store power in any specific way so we have to move the electrons it's amazing and what we're actually stating is that that amazing thing is a hundred percent obsolete in twenty years, and we have to build another one on top of that that is smarter, bigger, faster, uh, and more productive than the one that exists. That's an extraordinary challenge, and I, I agree with all the other panelists that it's wonderful to see the the federal government beginning to step up to meet that challenge as a state regulator. Uh, or I, I have to say, you know, for for 10 or so years there, it was a real challenge as a state regulator wondering where the federal government was uh, or whether it even existed sometimes. <laughs> um, but uh, I think we have a real opportunity here uh, as a network of interested parties in uh, a moment where if no action is taken, the outcome will be catastrophic for, for both our goals and for, for the subsequent generations. Uh, But it appears as though we are pulling ourselves together to do it. And it gives me great
2: pride to to be part of that. Thank you, Mackie. You know, it's such an important point that we have the technologies now to capture these huge benefits, public health benefits, climate change benefits, reductions in consumer costs, that the technologies have improved. But now we need a way to put them in place to deliver those benefits to To average Americans. And that's where I think the siding issue is is where to uh, continue Bill's analogy, the rubber meets the the road. Uh, Bob Kump, I wanted to talk to you as as someone who's deeply involved in a a specific transmission line effort uh, in in Maine and into New England. Tell us about your experience of the the difficulties of, of, of getting these lines up and running to benefit consumers in a way that that uh, limits costs and 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 uh, provides the most benefit. Sure,
7: and thank you, Paul. Good morning, everyone. And and Sue, I have to say, two points that you made resonated really, really well for me, and I and I wrote them both down. One is you mentioned the first one of the first projects you worked on was a DC line from from come back into into New England. Uh, and, and the concept of everyone needs to be a winner for these to be successful, because those really are, are important points. But where we are in New England right now, and Sue, you know this uh, better probably than I do, but uh, it still relies heavily on natural gas. On any given day, more than half of the generation uh, of electrons is through natural gas. And the states have had very strong RPS standards, and we're looking to obviously decarbonize. And Massachusetts got out in front of this a number of years ago and put out RFPs both for onshore and for offshore renewables. And uh, as it related to the onshore, there was a project DC uh, coming from Quebec, which has a tremendous amount of of hydro resources uh, through New Hampshire into into, uh, New England. And that project ultimately uh, saw tremendous opposition uh, a lot of it was uh, grassroots, but a lot of it also was uh, the generators in the region, particularly ones that are merchant, that stood to lose millions of dollars a day when 1,200 megawatts of clean energy was introduced into New England. So, when that was defeated, uh, our project um, was put to the fore as the next successful uh, project in that RFP. Very similar concept, it's a 1,200 megawatt DC line from Quebec working with Hydro-Quebec uh, through Maine into, into New England. It's fully paid for by consumers in, in Massachusetts. Uh, it would produce a reduction of over 3 million metric tons of CO2, the equivalent of taking 700,000 cars off the road. So we, we had been planning this several years before the, uh, the RFP in Massachusetts and I'm, I'm pleased to say that over the course of about two two and a half years, we fully permitted the project. We had absolutely strong support from each of the agencies, both from a federal and a state perspective. Given just the, the importance of this project to New England, because if you think about all the other uh, variable generation clean energy that's coming on, and most notably, uh, you know, offshore wind that's going to really create uh, as a game changer for, for the sector and for, for New England. Um, you know, that, that project just makes so much sense because we call it, if you would, the battery for New England to allow for all those intermittent resources. So we got it fully, fully permitted. We started construction in January. The issue has been um, behind a grassroots effort uh, again, are the largely fossil fuel generators in New England that are fighting this tooth and nail because this project would reduce energy prices by by um, I think the number is close to uh, twenty billion over the next twenty years. I mean, it's a huge reduction when you introduce twelve hundred megawatts of clean energy, uh, and so they actually are using the the, the system in Maine. To put out referendums to try to kill the project, despite the fact that we have all of the uh, all of the uh, the permits, uh, they tried one a couple of years ago. We were fortunate enough to defeat that because it was unconstitutional. It we went to the highest court in in the state of Maine and was defeated. But now they have another one on on the uh, on on the slate for vote this November, and this one looks to retroactively. Change laws that existed under which we got our permits to again look to to kill the project. So, Sue, you know, to your point, uh, we were really careful when we put this together to minimize environmental impact. So, two thirds of the 150 miles on uh, in Maine are on existing corridor. One third is is new corridor. However, it runs through a commercial forest. Um, so. We, we worked with the governor, who's been incredibly supportive of government mills, and we put together a benefits package of over $250 million for consumers. We also are allocating a portion of the output from the line because the DC converter is in Lewiston, Maine, and, and the state of Maine will get discounted uh, energy from that. But if you look at it, the one group that doesn't benefit is the existing generators in the region that stand to lose millions of dollars a day. And that's the piece that's fighting this. And this is the piece even beyond citing, that I think we need to deal with. Again, we've gotten tremendous-
2: It's a a thank you for that illustration of the challenge, Bob. And it's a really important point, right? We need to recognize that the clean energy transition is going to mean that there are industries that are going to be impacted, and we have to take them into consideration. And Donnie, I want to turn to you on that topic. I, you know, studies generally show that these investments are overall going to create huge numbers of new jobs, more than far more than would be lost by uh, industries that will be less competitive, um, and that these are good paying jobs. Can you talk about that how this transition is gonna benefit the average worker and and the economy in the transition away from the fossil fuel industry?
5: Oh, you know, uh, to think back of the transmission of how it moves forward right now for when I talked about earlier, our partnership with our utility partners and our apprenticeship training programs, clearly uh, the IBEW and our utilities can hire 10,000 linemen unless there are jobs to put them into. So that foresight of saying for the IBEW on our training programs is knowing that there's going to be a job for that worker. We clearly don't wanna bring them into our apprenticeship hall and say, okay, we're gonna give you three to five years worth of training and oh, by the way, we don't have a job for you. So, uh, but keeping all that in mind, just think of the 22 projects right now that are moving forward, just those, Uh, would create at the most estimate is about 1.2 million jobs uh, for 22 projects that are up and ready to go right now. Uh, That's a $23 billion investment that could pan out to 100 million from what the report said. And these are the type of jobs that President Biden's talking about clean energy transition jobs in other words, we can take we can take our power plant operator from a fossil fuel. We can make that person a transmission or distribution line person, and or mechanic or electrician, and we can move them right over to those clean. That's the the job transition of the discussion we're having with where are the jobs at. This is one of those places that those are where the jobs are at. Donnie, it's
2: uh, that's such an important point that. You have programs in place to help workers transition, from fossil fuels toward clean energy. I think it it can't be said often enough. Sue, I want to get back to the, the nature of the grid today. I, I, I see that the American Society of Engineers gave the current grid a, a C minus. It, it obviously has tremendous attributes, but as Mackey pointed out, it's just not made for the 21st century yet. And Tell, I, I see in the National Academy of Sciences report that you said that we need a new kind of high voltage interstate system to, to really capture the benefits of the clean energy transition. How do you envision that, that system? What are the benefits?
3: Well, the system needs to be expanded and modernized in ways that uh, my colleagues on the panel today have talked about. Uh, One of them has to do with making sure that we connect broader regions together. So one of the best tools for doing that is the high voltage direct current technology, which has been a proven technology in Europe and in the United States already, uh, as Bob described. Um, That enables uh, a lot of transfer very efficiently of power and it can move in uh, different directions and under the control of grid operators. Uh, at, who said the, that it was a big battery? Was that Mackie or was that Bob? I mean, that that is really what we can start to do which will be needed with a system with much more variable resources uh, like wind and solar um, in place. Um, but additionally, it needs to be resilient and cyber secure. Yesterday's grid was built a uh, hundred years ago, 90 years ago, 80 years ago. I mean, we have a very old and wonderful grid, but it, it needs to be at least doubled in terms of its carrying capacity, if not tripled. Uh, the accelerating decarbonization report that I mentioned from the National Academies Committee Uh, identified that one could expect to need to have it it be tripled in size. And that is also assuming that we we develop abundant decentralized resources. We still need to connect these very large regions. So um, it needs to be resilient. It needs to be broader to uh, capitalize on the diversity of loads and supplies. So there are a lot of changes that are needed. And a great Uh, great minds have been put together to think about how to solve some of these problems. And I would just do a shout out again to Chairman Glick at FERC, who uh, has invited uh, state representatives to join together in conversations about how to overcome many of these uh, very challenging citing issues that Mackie described.
2: Thank you, Sue. It's a good shout out to- If
3: I
5: could just- add on to that. Uh, just ahead, You please. know, you think about the right-of-ways that it takes right now for AC versus DC. You, they're smaller right-of-ways. You can run longer distances with less infrastructure in place. But the system was built by 100 plus utilities. That's, that's why it's a spider web. No one envisioned a national grid. They built the transmission system to only service the, the customers that they had. It was through the foresight of saying we can increase reliability and resiliency if we tie that grid together. So that's where we're starting at.
2: That, that's a really important, Donnie. I wanted to turn uh, back back to 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 Bill, if I Bill if I can. Bill, I, I see the Department of Energy report that said that. Um, solar power could uh, power forty percent of U.S. electricity by 2035. But buried in the fine print in that report was the need for a huge expansion of high-voltage power lines to make that happen. I know your members are the, the 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 companies who are producing this power and and making sure it gets delivered. Tell us about the the challenge for wind and solar uh, and transmission.
4: Yeah, let me. I want to. I want to. Uh, share a story I, I heard from Barbara Sugg, who runs the, the Southwest Power Pool, and she was relating to an ACOR uh, audience how during winter storm URI, everybody will recall that, it, particularly in Texas, you know, it was a huge, in some cases, catastrophic uh, shutdown there. And she said, you know, um, it was tough for us too, but because we were able to pull power from PJM through MISO into SPP, we kept the lights on in over 5 million homes. And, and, and it's, it, it, it's just it, like climate change, it's not a tomorrow issue, this is a today issue. So where wow. we have functionality, we're already seeing the benefit and where we don't, we're seeing the harm. This, is, um, this anecdote is further supported. Um, I'll share, Paul, we were, we were talking ahead of this uh, session. On the consumer, right? So uh, rubber meets the road where you hit the where the consumer, and what the consumer. Increasing, I think people understand that the costs of inaction are just catastrophically high, uh, and so we do need to be decarbonizing uh, on a you know sort of scientifically grounded um, uh, timetable. Uh, what the modeling does show, and 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 you just start with the the idea that one of the yes, the solar and wind, for example, are intermittent sources of power, but they also have an inherent advantage because there's no fuel supply. So over time, they, you know, there's no cost to that, right? And so they're going to have an inherent advantage um, uh, over time. The second thing, I think Susan and others uh, brought this out, and it's, it's once it's sort of uh, described, I think it makes eminent sense to people, is there are two things that happen when you can draw from power sources from a broader footprint. The, the, the first is, you know, uh, the, the grid uh, is in many places and ought to be when we're done with this exercise, bigger than any weather pattern. Right. So that if you have sun shining or you know clouds or wind not blowing, or whatever, you have you have a you have a broad enough grid to draw from where, where the weather pattern is varied enough that you're gonna have contributions regardless across the grid that you're covered. This is a great point. Any grid operator will tell you is if I can pull, and I'm speaking as a grid operator, if I I I just I got greater access to low cost resources. Like I can do my balancing on the most cost effective basis if you give me more choice. And that choice is provided by the intercon- the interconnectivity that the twenty first century transmission bill that we need will provide.
2: That, that's a really interesting point about how consumers are going to benefit in in both reliability and in in cost over and, time. Uh, Go yeah, ahead. Let please. me just uh, well yeah just
4: one just and I'll, I'll just twelve seconds just in terms of like some Susan's obviously this is her lane but you know in terms of some academic stuff that back this up the NREL seam study. Uh, in a decarbonization scenario, you get $47 billion of annual savings from the transmission build out to do this, which is about $2.50 return for every dollar invested. And the CLAC study said, you can get to 80% decarbonization through transmission build out alone. It's just tough to to think about. I see the Senator may have arrived.
2: Senator Hickenlooper, thank you so much, uh, sir, for joining us today. Yes, there I am.
8: I'm trying to figure out
2: how to unmute
8: and we're having some Wi-Fi challenges here in the in the Senate office, so I apologize.
2: No, not at all, sir. It's great to see you again. And, and thanks for making the time to, to talk about this today. You know, we've been talking to this panel of experts about how many jobs, how much economic activity is gonna be created by this clean energy transition. And, and what an amazing, Opportunity it is for average Americans to get good clean energy jobs, but but how this transmission issue may prevent fully accomplishing that vision. And you know, knowing of your leadership in when you were governor in Colorado and now on Senate Energy Committee, I want to get your perspective on the big picture here of uh, of what's at stake for average Americans and in, in our our competitiveness, employment. Uh, Reducing consumer costs and and, and and addressing climate change. Well, thank you, and and I appreciate all the
8: work that the Progressive Policy Institute has been doing on this for so long, uh, uh, much longer than I have. And I think you know, you all obviously have already laid out the imperative, right? That that climate change we're well past the point of debating, you know, how 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 real is this threat and how significant is this threat? It's real, it's significant. If there was ever a year that demonstrated that, it's this year and this summer. Um, hurricanes, fires, etc. So once you accept that, then it's important to do just what you're doing is laying out the economic groundwork of how this actually is gonna be a stimulant for the economy and, and not you know, take away jobs, but but expand jobs. And that allows us to really begin saying, all right, once you accept those things, which I think, you know, you've kind of laid the groundwork already today, um, you have to see what are the bottlenecks that could slow this whole process down. And I think that's going to be the kind of technical and engineering challenges that we face right now. And one of those big bottlenecks that I just want to take a minute to talk about is transmission uh, and the importance of, of making sure that we have a, uh, a, a, a grid that is ready for what we needed to do. And you know, the recent Princeton study, I'm sure you guys have all seen that, said that we need to, to triple, I mean, literally triple the transmission infrastructure by 2050. I mean, that's a, 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 a crazy, ambitious uh, goal, if we're really gonna decarbonize it, that, that we're gonna have to triple this thing. Um, but I think it's the key is that we can't just generate, you know, clean energy in pockets. We're gonna have to generate clean energy and get it where it needs to go efficiently. Uh, and that that's got to happen very rapidly. And I think, you know, there are lots of benefits from this. It's going to provide uh, revenue and jobs in rural communities. In other words, this is gonna really tie together the country um, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to c- again create inexpensive as well as clean energy for consumers, um, and again by investing in the in transmission and the grid, we're going to give a get a level of resiliency that you know, based on what we've seen this year is sorely lacking in the existing system. So I think um, you know there are. A, a lot of challenges getting here. Um, we've seen modeling coming out of NREL, the National Renewable Energy Labs, which of course I'm always proud to- give
2: Colorado, them,
8: yes. They're Colorado. <laughs> um, but the big benefit cost ratios uh, come from these, you know, inter-regional high capacity transmission systems um, with the largest benefits with uh, a high percentage of clean energy uh, you know, as, as a, the, the major contributing factor. Um, obviously, one of the big issues here is the siting challenges that go from state to state. Uh, and this has been, you know, true for so long and in so many parts of our infrastructure where you run the risk of, you know, NIMBYs really fighting back against in my backyard, uh, questions about the efficiency of the investments, uh, trying to figure out what are, the, what are the key, most important aspects of the, of the infrastructure investment? Um, and I think one solution here, which, which Senator Whitehouse uh, and Senator Heinrich have kind of united around, there was a, a little bit of a square dance there to get to that negotiation. Um, but I'm a co-sponsor with, it, with them is in the goal of uh, establishing a new siting authority at FERC, uh, for large interstate transmission lines, uh, which would give transmissions some level of parity um, with how we do things for natural gas pipelines, again, which aren't perfect. Um, the, the, this is called the Site Act, and it would allow um, you know the ability to create these high priority uh, interstate transmission systems. Um, but at the same time, make sure we have robust protections for private landholders, which isn't in some of the other uh, FERC issues. Um, the Bipartisan uh, Infrastructure Bill, the, you know, what's it, what's it called now, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, I you know, if, if, if the Senate keeps changing names of these things, it's going to be <laughs> the end of um But anyway, that, what I call the, the, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. Um, has clarifying language in it that I think will lay out uh, protections around this, but also allow us to see that this is something that is crucially important. It's gotta be a very, very high priority. Uh, and again, I've seen this in Colorado and, and and I think all across the country where crucial small segments can be jeopardized and held up through, uh, Really, someone is trying to hold the, the entire project hostage uh, for one reason or another. And again, if you believe that climate change is serious, we have to give our our our, our you know or, our our institutions like FERC some level of authority to aggressively solve these disputes. And and it's got to be in real time. So anyway, that's the uh, these these in, within these uh high priority corridors uh that are that are have been identified by the department of energy we need to we need to be able to push as fast as we can to get resolution so that's my that's my pitch today um you know talk to me tomorrow
2: i'll have another priority (laughs) not not at all sir i know you've been at this for a long time and thank you honestly for your leadership both within the sent energy committee in getting some provisions in, as you say, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And then the even more ambitious effort in the site Act along with uh, Senators Heinrich and and White House. That's that's very important leadership. And the the thing is, I know from our, our, our work together when you were governor, that Colorado has had incredible benefits, economic benefits, consumer benefits from the expansion of clean energy. Tell me a little bit about the Colorado miracle on clean energy and how you see it as a model for the country.
8: Well, you know, we were the, and this was before I got into the state government, back when I was still a, a, a the mayor of Denver, uh, but we were the first state to go out and have the voters pass uh, clean energy standards. And I don't think we really appreciated at the time how how significant that would be, not just to... You know, uh, cleaning up our carbon emissions, but really stimulating our economy. And there are a lot of arguments about how, how much credit do those clean energy standards deserve for the overall economy. But I think there is—it's beyond dispute—that there was a sense of of momentum and 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 forward momentum that getting that passed and then beginning to implement it really made a, a huge difference. And then since then, we've—you know—while I was governor, we we push those standards out, uh, not quite as uh, ambitious and aggressive, but into the rural co-ops uh, and originally they pushed back pretty hard uh, on some of those efforts, uh, but within four or five years now we have the, uh, the co-ops coming back to us and wanting to go and be more ambitious because one of the great benefits of, of having a, a, a citizen led initiative that was passed at the ballot meant that we really allowed the people of Colorado to understand the issue uh, and how important it is and they in, in Colorado every poll continues to show increasing appreciation of climate changes as a challenge and uh, continuing expansion of the of, of of understanding that you have to do you have to have things like clean energy standards that where government is really. Adding, you know, uh, adding push to accelerate the transition that's already happening, uh, and I think within Colorado the the level of job creation uh, by any measure now we're up well over sixty thousand. I think eighty thousand jobs was one of the last estimates I saw of, of new jobs created in this in this transition to a clean energy economy. Uh, that's meaningful, and I again, if we begin feathering in the the investments into the grid and transmission uh, with the actual generation of the energy. And then look at, I think we also should be looking at the remediation of the old sources of pollution. So mines, oil and gas wells, methane leakages, those kinds of things. And, and we really begin addressing those sources of carbon emissions. Then we are in a place where we are clearly net positive in jobs and net positive in jobs in rural areas. Uh, and in, and in some of the uh, states hardest hit by this transition, or at least they perceive they're the hardest hit, like you know West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, some of those uh, coal-intensive
2: uh, states. That's a great point, sir. I know that you were one of those responsible for $16 billion in the bipartisan infrastructure bill for the remediation of these older mines. Uh, these, these abandoned wellheads and others. That's a, a very important program. And I think uh, the president has mentioned it several times as a, a critical step in the transition for those workers. So, you know, thank you for your leadership. You know, it occurs to me, sir, that Colorado is, is kind of uh, emblematic of, of, of the challenges that the nation faces. We have the challenges of the Colorado River, uh, whose flows are diminishing because of climate change. You have the count challenges of wildfires in, in in the West and in Colorado, but then you have the opportunity to uh, create, a, as I remember, uh, unemployment with 2% when you left, uh, Really created an economic miracle there. And I just I really think that you're sort of a national emblem of what we can do if we put our minds to it. And I want you to talk a little bit about how you see the long term future if we're able to act uh, on climate change. With clean energy and with transmission siding, and and, and and how is this really going to make our country stronger economically, uh, environmentally, and in terms of public safety? Sure, uh,
8: and I guess what I'll, I'll I'll cut to the chase because I think everything that Colorado did is essential, and and that's how you build momentum is finding incremental changes you can make something here or something there, but. The more I get deeper and deeper, and this is the great thing about the US Senate, is, is your, your responsibility, my responsibility as a senator is to go deeper and deeper on the most important issues. I don't have to go out and kiss babies. I don't cut ribbons at the opening of a new, a new bridge. I'm supposed to go deeper and deeper and I can't help but see that we need to put a price on carbon, that, that when, when I came into the Senate, I was told by almost everybody, no, we've tried that, and and there's no way that's going to get passed. Well, just in the last 10 months since I've been in the Senate, public opinion continues to move that needle. And if you want to really look at how we're ever going to succeed against climate change, it's not going to happen if all we do are these incremental changes. These incremental changes have to build the foundation so that we get and I'm my preference is a fee and dividend, you know, and, and maybe we take some allocation, maybe don't we don't dividend at all back, but make sure that everybody comes out positive. Uh, or the, the you know, the vast majority of working people come out positive. And that,
2: that's a program where Americans would get a check every year for any extra taxes that they face on energy. Is that right, sir? Yeah, even every month. I think it probably works
8: better as a as a monthly check that people get that. Compensates them for the increases in price on all sorts of things that use energy to be manufactured or delivered, however. And that what we what we do then in that fee and dividend is we really incentivize and motivate industry, but the you know, the 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 small businesses, the large businesses of America to find ways of building things, manufacturing things, transporting things, using less energy. And you know. And this is originally a Republican. You know, George Schultz is the person who persuaded me the the, the benefits of this back in 1997. Or, no, it wasn't 1997. 2007, uh, where he kind of helped you know opened my eyes to this. But that systemic opportunity is out there in front of us, and I can't tell you how many Republican senators are reconsidering this. Uh, and all you know, the American Petroleum Institute now is in favor of a of, a, of putting a price on carbon. Uh, You know, United Airlines has been strident coming out in in favor of this, a lot of the largest corporations. Now, they're not yet, even the, you know, mobile Exxon says they're in favor of a price on carbon. They're not yet threatening or pushing Republican legislators to to get active on this. That's the next big step. But I think we're making tremendous progress. And as that happens, I think it will unlock, you know, just a cavalcade of benefits uh, in terms of economic growth, job creation, uh, environmental cleansing right of our air, the air we breathe, the water, all these things are byproducts of, a, of, of, of directly confronting climate change in such a way that we can actually win that battle.
2: You know, it's such a good point about the, the rise in bipartisan interest. For a while, it did seem like the Republican Party, President Trump, did not have much interest in this issue, but 19 of your Republican colleagues supported the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Can you talk a little bit, to, just to close us out today, about the bipartisan support for the transmission siting agenda that you've encountered in the Senate and how the economic benefits might be able to, to truly turn the the the, the building of the clean energy transition into a bipartisan effort.
8: Well, that, you know, I was part of that group of, in the end, it was 22 <clears throat> Democrats and Republicans, 11 Democrats, 11 Republicans, that negotiated that bipartisan bill. And it was a wonder to watch. The, the, you, know, the, you talk about muscles atrophy after a certain period of non-use. Well, that's a little bit true of our, our democratic system here. And it was it was magical to watch this muscle. There, there's muscle memory there, and people <laughs> negotiating in good faith and really listening to each other. And I don't think there's a single person among those 22 centers who's totally happy with that bill. But the fact that we've got and I can I don't even have it in front of me. Whatever it was 64 64 billion dollars for for transmission. Uh, you know, major investments for electric vehicle recharging stations across the country. I mean, these are you know, transformative investments that allow us to really uh, dramatically move forward in in addressing climate change. And that was discussed in those terms in those meetings. So without question, we have 11 Republicans that took a stand there. And then obviously the uh, another uh, five or six or seven Republicans, Agreed to vote for the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill uh, when it came onto the floor. I'm again, I'm an incurable optimist. I'm a former entrepreneur. It's it's in my DNA to be optimistic, but I think there are a lot of grounds for for optimism here in 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 what we're seeing, at least being discussed and put forward in the Senate, that this can lead to hopefully accelerating change. Well, because- sir. We're-
3: Paul, I want to interrupt, because, um, Senator, I moved from New England to Colorado five years ago. I am so proud that (laughs) you are my senator. Thank you so much for your leadership on these issues.
2: No, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) That that Sue Tierney. Senator Hickenlooper. Well, listen. Thanks so much for your time and your incredible insight and work on these issues. And I think leading us with that hopeful note is is really the right way to think about it. If we can just capture the benefits of these technologies, this is going to make the country country richer, more secure, cleaner, and safer. And it it your leadership is just such a central part of that. We know that the sighting of transmission is a key part of it. Thank you for your work on this. And uh, thank you, everyone in the audience. Uh, Sorry we didn't get to more of your questions, but we promise to do this again soon. Uh, Thank you to our panelists and uh, thank you again, Senator Hickenlooper, uh, Progressive Policy Institute, Paul Bledsoe. Uh, Great to see you all and and have a good afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul.
9: Hi, my name is Jasmine Stoughton and I am currently managing the Mosaic Economic Project at PPI. I started here at PPI about four weeks ago, so I'm very new, but I came from Austin, Texas, raised there, did a lot of work in the Texas House, and then moved to Fort Worth, worked on some campaigns and local governance, and then most recently I came to D.C. So the Mosaic Economic Project brings together a network of diverse women who are experts in economics and technology, which are fields where women's perspectives are grossly underrepresented. We essentially work to train, connect, host and advocate for the network's participation in meaningful policy influencing conversations with a particular focus on Congress in the media. So we just wrapped on our third Mosaic Women Changing Policy Workshop. It was our third cohort, and we were able to bring in eight experts, most of which who were in economics and a couple who are in tech. Um, and their expertise ranges from freight and rail to blockchain technology to tax policy. So it was quite a diverse group. Um, and we were able to bring in some really great speakers as well, These speakers were teaching the women how to engage with the media, how to engage on Capitol Hill. So we had academics coming in, talking about these topics from their perspective, being an academic and going into the public sphere. And we definitely look forward to planning some more dynamic and engaging sessions for the women and also just help them forge new partnerships as they advance their policy engagement work. So if you wanna learn more about Mosaic, please follow us on Twitter. It's at Mosaic PPI.
0: Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.